Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in productivity and professional development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and happy to give you ideas that can elevate your leadership role in your current or perhaps your future nonprofit organization. Thanks, as always, for listening and for the great feedback we're getting. Happy to continue to bring you these weekly conversations with experts that can help you on your journey and provide you the kind of content that will not only give you things to think about, but also offer suggestions for improvement. Speaking of someone who can really help on all these fronts, I'm excited to bring you this week's conversation with Dolph Goldenberg, who leads a consulting firm based in Atlanta. It's called Successful Nonprofits. And not only has Dolph worked with dozens of nonprofit organizations, but he served as an executive director for over a dozen years himself. So he knows what he's talking about in terms of nonprofit leadership. He's actually published a book on board development and has a fantastic podcast which shares the name of his firm, which is called Successful Nonprofits. You need to check that out. Dolph and I uh, had a great conversation about a number of topics I think that will interest you. Number one, he has uh, productivity tips as a CEO himself, four specific ideas that I think can help you as a leader better organize yourself. Of course, we got into fundraising, uh, lots of discussion there about how nonprofit leaders and organizations uh, can approach fundraising in this time of uncertainty. But the advice he gives certainly applies at any time. He also had a couple of uh, fascinating ideas about what every nonprofit should be investing in right now, two uh, items in particular. And finally, we got into one of his specialty areas, of course, which is board development. How do we engage our board members uh, and get them involved uh, anytime during our nonprofit life cycle? Well, don't forget to check out the show notes for this episode. It's number 44. Just go to the podcast or the news page at PattonMcDowell.com, and you'll find all the resources, the links, books, and all the information on Dolph and the great work he's doing at Successful Nonprofits. Speaking of resources, don't forget to go to our website, PattonMcDowell.com. Check out the very top of the homepage and sign up for our monthly resources newsletter or get in touch with us if we can help your organization with its strategic planning or fundraising, or if you personally would like to discuss ways we can help you on your nonprofit leadership journey. We'll be delighted to continue that conversation. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dolph Goldenberg. Thank you for joining me on the path. Hey, Pat, and thanks so much for having me. I'm grateful to be here. Well, I'm excited for this conversation, Dolph. I'm a big fan of your podcast. I have become recently acquainted with your book. You've got lots of great things to say. And of course, you're also on the front line with a lot of organizations struggling right now with this COVID-19 situation. Um, but before we talk about some of that kind of real-time strategy and so forth, tell me, how did you get on the path? So I will admit I'm one of those unusual people where I have worked in the nonprofit sector my entire professional life. So literally since graduating from college. However, I started college with the plan to become a social studies teacher. And, <laughs> That's great. Um, yeah. And, and, and it's interesting because I, I had a education professor who took me aside uh, when I think I was a freshman in college. And, and at the time, um, 
I still am an out gay, gay person, but at the time I was an out gay person and this was, you know, three decades ago when the world was very different and I was in a conservative state. And right. he essentially said, you know, you're not gonna get hired as a teacher. So maybe you should think about what else you wanna major in. Wow. And so, um, yeah, so at the end of my first year, I was like, okay, I guess I'll go become a social worker. So I graduated from college and I, I did what a lot of people with BSWs do, which is I became a case manager and I was a case manager with uh, folks uh, who are dual diagnosed and who are homeless. And uh, after my first few months, they asked me to start writing some grant proposals. I realized that I really enjoyed grant writing. They realized that I literally, like in the first year, was bringing in hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, and they, they moved me into the fundraising department. And, you know, from there, I mean, it just, you know, it, it's almost everybody else's story. You know, they, I was a fundraiser for about a decade, then became an executive director, was an ED for about a dozen years or so, and then transitioned into consulting. But, but I will say that I literally have spent my entire professional career in the nonprofit sector. That's fantastic. And I knew you and I had some good similarities, Dolph, but it's funny. Um, we share that perhaps. I, I am an education major as well and fully expected to be an English teacher and hopefully a basketball coach when I was in school. But uh, an internship in the nonprofit sector allowed me to go down a path similar to yours, and it's been nonprofit ever since. So excited to hear your story and hear more about it as you apply it to the work you've done ever since. But before we dive into that, uh, as you know, I always ask my guests, uh, given the volume of activity nonprofit leaders are trying to deal with, Dolph, how do you stay organized? Not only are you doing consulting with lots of organizations, of course, you're putting on the podcast. I'm curious if you found any tips or tricks you could share with our listeners. So I actually have three different organizational systems that I use, but I don't use them all at the same time. So probably like, like most humans on the planet, what I find is when I, when I start using a system, I'm really good and diligent about it. And then after three or four months, I start to slide. And so, gosh, many <laughs> years ago, I, I found three systems that I really like. And so when I start to slide on one of them, I switch over to one of the other systems and then it's, it feels new and, I, and I'm much more engaged in actually using the system. So my three systems, the first is really low tech. The first is a three by five card system where I write everything I need to do um, on three by five cards. And each three by five card has just one task. And that's actually the system that I'm using right now. And so um, in my hand, I just picked up my stack. I've got about um, 43 by five cards. And when I've done an item, I rip it, I throw it in the trash. I, I, it's, a, it's a great experience where I get that little dopamine rush. And yes, I finished it and I rip it. Right. Um, and, and I'll share with you that I know that that system will work really well for me for three or four months. And then I'll switch to an Excel spreadsheet, which is, uh, which is a, little, a little better because I can, I can filter it based on type of task, based on how long I estimate that it's going to take. Um, and then also, for example, if it's a client or the podcast or something like that, so I can, I can filter it. Um, and then I, I add and delete things kind of in a real time basis. And then the last system that I use. And so when Excel starts to get old and I'm not doing it the way I should, I actually switch over to the office task list, which is pretty robust. Right. But what I've found is just one system, um, after a few months no longer works for me, but what I, but what, instead of finding a new system every three or four months, I just swap out one that I already know. Um, but I will also share with you, Patton, I have about three months ago started playing with something else. Um, I bought 
these really beautiful sand timers on Amazon. Right. And they're everywhere from, I think there's like six or seven of them. They start with 30 seconds and they go up to 30 minutes. And so um, part of what this does is this helps keep me honest about my time, but it also helps me on things like email. So email is a black hole that will destroy our lives if we let it. <laughs> yes, and, indeed. And, and, yeah. And, and, you know, my coaching with chief executives, I say this all the time where, you know, if, if you get, and I actually do, I get typically between 80 and a hundred emails a day. And if I take three minutes to respond to 80 emails, that's 240 minutes. That is four hours of work. If all I do is just take three minutes to respond and the average is actually higher than three minutes if I let it be. Right. And so this is where, this is where I use these sand timers where if I think, Oh, it should only take me 30 seconds to respond to this. I tip over my 30 second sand timer and I know whether or not it really took me 30 seconds. So the Love other that. thing that I really try to do is have good email hygiene and, uh, and really make sure that I don't let it take over my life. That's fantastic advice. And, and you've given at least four different ways someone could approach productivity. It, it strikes me as a bit of the Pomodoro method, right? But you've ad adjusted it. You know, I've heard of the Pomodoro people saying, you know, invest 25 minutes in a task and then be disciplined about getting up and kind of shifting gears. But it sounds like you adjust your timers according to different types of tasks. Certainly, you don't want to spend 25 minutes on an email. Right. I, I absolutely. Or if you do, it has to be intentional. And so, for example, if I tip over, if I'm like, oh, this is going to take me a minute to respond to this email. If I tip over the five minute timer and it runs out, I now know I need to schedule time to finish responding to that email right. as opposed to as opposed to taking the next 20 minutes to actually respond. Now, part of what that means, and I manage expectations with people about this, and Patton, I, I actually probably owe you an apology because you probably see this with me. Um, <laughs> I... I write pretty short, brief, terse emails. And I know sometimes that comes across the wrong way. No offense taken, but I think people are more uh, cognizant of that and don't take it personally because you're right. Everybody's dealing with such a high volume. Right. So I, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Like how, how do you manage your email? Yeah, I, I don't have the discipline yet of the sand timer. I am trying to be more disciplined about only checking email at certain times because you're right, the black hole can start. And I was guilty of, you know, first thing waking up, and all of a sudden, you've lost, perhaps the most creative and productive time of your day, dealing with mindless emails. So trying to be intentional about avoiding email, frankly, before you know, at least the first hour and a half of activity, like you uh, trying to determine priorities, I don't have the cool index card system you do. But I do have a, a, a kind of to-do list app that helps me. And I try the night before to determine there are three things I've got to get done right off the bat. And so that combination has helped me kind of navigate the, the challenges of email. Nice. Well, uh, this is great. And productivity is uh, something I've tried to lift up. And you have given us some great ideas, Dolph, on that front. Let's dive into the current realities that I know you're seeing through your guests your clients and just anyone in the field. Um, I'm assuming, Dolph, the uncertainty of funding is the biggest issue you're hearing about, or are there other things uh, or challenges that nonprofit leaders are facing? So I think uncertainty of funding is definitely a challenge, especially for those organizations that are heavily funded by individuals. But I think there's also some other challenges that I'm seeing. One of those is how do we reopen safely? 
So, you know, and, and this is also true in the for-profit sector. You have some businesses that have jumped right in or, and, you know, it's May something now and have already reopened. And then, you know, you have other businesses that are saying, we're not bringing staff back until 2021. Right. So we're, you know, we're not bringing staff back for six or seven months and everything in between. But, but I think those of us, especially those of us that are at smaller and mid-sized nonprofits, to, to figure out how we're going to manage risk um, for our staff, for our volunteers, for the people that we serve while reopening is probably going to be one of the most daunting challenges with, frankly, possible life or death consequences that yep. we are going to face in our career. You're exactly right. And, and you just can't underestimate that. And every sector that we work with, Dolph, right, is having to deal with some variation of that. Obviously, if you're in the performing arts, you know, how are you going to deliver that? Or can you deliver online? Are you seeing organizations, I guess, some better than others that are adapting to what is now almost exclusively a virtual dynamic? Well, I, I will say I've been really impressed at the number of organizations that have gone fully remote in a very short period of time, right. especially when you realize that most organizations, if they're going to go even partially remote, take six to 18 months to do it, to get the technology, to train everyone, to create policies and procedures. Organizations literally have done this in a two or three week period instead. And you know, there's going to be some drawback. There's not the policies and procedures and we're going to make some mistakes. And then we're going to have to figure out what policies and procedures we need. But, uh, you know, I, I have seen organizations do everything from, frankly, HIV testing online, where instead of having people come into the office, they send a home test kit. Um, and then they schedule a pre-counseling and a post-counseling session. So the person is essentially supposed to do their test at home um, real time with the counselor. Wow. It, it, to, yeah, exactly. You know, to, you know, to a ballet company that is doing their their dance school classes online. We are really finding new ways to work. Where I think the long-term opportunity is, is that we will continue to have these new ways to work and these new ways to deliver services in 24 months when this is all over with. So, you know, so as an example, if you're a school and you figure out how to provide your educational opportunity online, but whether it's an accredited school or you know, kind of a hobby school. If you have figured out how to do that online, when you return to place-based classes, you can still offer online services that won't be restricted to your region. They literally could be national or international. So I do think this has also opened a really interesting opportunity, both for program delivery, but also for recruitment. Many, many organizations have realized that, you know, perhaps their grant writer really does not have to sit in, in an office Right. In their, you know, in, in their building. And once they're freed from having to have a grant writer that's in their city, they might find a great grant writer across the country. Such a good point. And so, in other words, the short-term challenges that people are adapting around could offer long-term benefits. And perhaps that's the way we should approach strategic planning in general right now. Oh, absolutely. And, and I'll share with you that I think part of that will also help organizations address one of the other challenges that I think they're facing, which is how do we meet that increased and emerging need that clients and communities have? So one of the things that we are seeing um, right now with COVID-19 and sheltering in place is that there are some divides in our country that are much starker now than they were before between right. the haves and the have-nots. And, and so I think I think using some of these new tools, they may be able to bridge some of those divides. 
Yeah, such a good point. I was talking to Jim Taylor from Board Source just last week, and he raised that point too. And of course, these are issues that we shouldn't wait for a, a pandemic to address, but the pandemic in many ways may exacerbate the challenges that Dolph, you just lifted up. Absolutely. I, I will say one of the things that has become uh, painfully apparent in terms of the divide between the haves and the have-nots is the digital divide. So as so many of us start to do online services, again, whether that's education or medicine or behavioral health or anything else, uh, there are uh, a significant percentage of Americans that are, that are left behind. And, and frankly, it is not just an economic thing. We also have rural Americans that, you know, that, that do not have the access to broadband that right. those of us living in the suburbs and in urban areas have. And so consequently, they do not have as good of access to the service we're now providing. So one of the, one of the opportunities that I see, whether this is the for-profit sector or the nonprofit sector, is finding ways to bridge the, that digital divide so that everyone can have access to broadband the same way that everyone has access to running water and electricity. It's a great point. And hopefully, again, that might be among the silver lining elements that emerge from this current situation. And I'm glad you lifted it up for everyone. Uh, Dolph, you specialized in the dynamic of boards, boards of directors and their executive director counterparts. Are you seeing anything in particular now that or advice you're giving to organizations as to how they interact with their board members uh, during this time? Oh my gosh, yeah. So, so the first thing is um, communicate, communicate, communicate. And nothing, uh, nothing beats the most personal forms of communication that you can have. And right now that might not be in person, but video calls, phone calls, uh, I, I think this is, this is a critical time for executive directors to make sure that their boards are informed. Again, that there is not just financial risk right now, but but there but there is also you know frankly safety risk and other risks as we look at reopening. And executive directors want to make sure that they are walking in lockstep with their board leadership. You only do that through frequent communication. I know a number of executive directors who currently are meeting with their executive committee every single week. And it's not a long meeting. It's a 30 minute meeting, right. uh, but you know, but, but, but it really is kind of, okay, here's where our COVID-19 preparations are. Here's where our, our reopen planning is. It, what thoughts, ideas, suggestions do you have so we can improve this to really make sure you've got that communication. But then, you know, you may have this weekly meeting with your executive committee and then have eight or 10 other board members that are not on your executive committee. So make sure that you're staying in touch with them. And that really does mean phone calls or, hey, can we hop on Zoom? Yeah. One of the things that I've that I've really been enjoying is having lunch with people by Zoom. And some, you know, the first time you do it, it feels a little bit odd, but <laughs> you, you literally say to the person, you know, hey, you know, you bring your plate to lunch, I'll bring my plate to lunch, and we're gonna have lunch the same way we would as if we were at a restaurant. And and it and there's something about meeting over food and being able to see someone that helps you really continue to build that relationship. But for me, you know, all all board relationships start with that communication. Without that, you're you're really four steps behind. I love that, Dolph, and that breaking bread together. You're right; is just such a, a ritual. I think for any industry, but certainly nonprofit and those of us that are trying to cultivate relationships and donors. But you're right; we can uh, keep that up uh, through online mechanisms. I've seen organizations too, Dolph, doing kind of a similar happy hour arrangement you know, trying to turn the 
evening social uh, or late afternoon social is an opportunity even through a Zoom setting or something like that. Oh, absolutely. And I'll share with you some associations are also doing that for their members. And it is just an incredibly successful thing for them to do at a time when so many people are at home and feeling isolated. Yeah, it's great advice. And I'm glad you're giving things uh, for our folks to think about. Dolph, is your advice similar in terms of the relationship to our donors? Again, I know we don't want to bombard them as they are likely dealing with many issues as well as many other causes, but how do you advise folks in terms of their communication to their donors? So one of the things that I think is important to remember is with COVID-19, we are all in the same storm, but we're not in the same boat. And so, you know, so, so, you know, our donors are experiencing COVID-19 in ways that are unique to them, the same way every individual is experiencing it. And so the first thing I think really is that personal communication, the calling up, hey, how are you doing? Have a Zoom lunch with them. And you know, just, you know, hey, want to give you a quick update on the organization, but more importantly, how are you doing? Um, and really check in with them. This is a good time, by the way, to share with your donors what you and your family are doing um, to really start to build that personal relationship nice. and ask them, you know, what, what they and their families are doing. Because this is a time when we're all spending a lot more time with our family. And, you know, frankly, we're all um, much more concerned about our family's safety, regardless of who we are. Now, having said that, um, and let me say, Patton, I acknowledge, yes, there are, there are probably 30 million newly unemployed people right now. Right. But 80% of the nation is still working. And chances are your major donors, at least 80% of them are still working as well. And what we have found in our own household is that our expenses have actually gone down during COVID-19. So when Frank and I were, were looking at our, at our and, and we, we settle up quarterly, so when we were looking at our quarterly expenses and you know, tracking uh, the expenses, we're like, oh my gosh, wow, we went out. You know, we didn't go out at all in April. We went <laughs> exactly, to restaurants exactly. in April. Like we, we saved hundreds and hundreds of dollars. And both Frank and I looked at each other and we're like, well, you know, there's, there's organizations we care about. And so since we've far underspent our budget, this is a good time for us to give to those organizations. So I'm not even saying that this is not a time to ask. But before you ask, check in, make sure your donor is okay. Um, and, and then, you know, if they're doing good, it's certainly okay for you to talk about what your needs are in a low pressure way. This is, you know, this is not the time for high pressure, but in a low pressure way. That's fantastic. Uh, as always, as fundraisers, we need to be good listeners first. And then with that sensitivity, maybe there is opportunity for continued investment. Absolutely. Um, Dolph, you, you have prepared organizations already for what, unfortunately, may be a coming recession. Uh, talk about that. What things uh, do you think every nonprofit should be focused on right now uh, if indeed the economy is going to worsen? So I, I think the first thing that, uh, that nonprofits have to focus on, quite frankly, is liquidity. So how much cash do you have and, and what are your sources of cash? Uh, understanding how many days of cash in the bank you have, which is, frankly, it, it's a it's pretty simple equation. You know, what you do is you take, um, you know, the last three, six or 12 months of expenses um, to create an average monthly expense. And then, you know, you and then you figure out how many days that is and you've come up with an average daily expense. Right. And then you divide that into how much cash you have. And so the ideally in the ideal world, you're sitting on more than 30 days. But but if you're not, 
then to start taking a look at your accounts receivable, who owes you money, you know, and then also starting to look at your expenses. What can you renegotiate? Can you renegotiate your rent? Can you renegotiate your insurance? Uh, you know, if you've got some contractors or contracts, can you, can you renegotiate, for example, um, a janitorial contract or a security contract so that you can reduce costs? But right, right now, this is, this is a period where you really want to understand um, what, how much cash you have, where the cash is coming from, what is secure and what is not, and what your contingency plans are should you start to run low on cash. So for me, that's the first thing. The second, though, is technology, technology, technology. Interesting. The, the, yep. Yeah, because the organizations that embrace technology are the ones that are going to succeed in this recession, in part because, for the most part, our donors um, our clients are probably for the next year to 18 months not going to want to go out as much as they used to. Right. So the more things that you can do um, that where you're bringing things to them, whether that's a special event, um, like a fundraising event, or whether that's a program, the more you are bringing things to your donors and to your clients, the more successful you're going to be. Great advice. And Dolph, I'm sure you'd agree that uh, for nonprofit leaders, we've got to anticipate some of this scenario planning because our boards, if they're doing their job, they're going to start asking that question too, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. And, and it's interesting. I mean, the organizations I work with almost across the board are, are looking at different scenarios and essentially saying, you know, we've, we've done an event every fall or even we canceled our spring event and hope to reschedule it in the fall. And we don't think it's going to happen. So, you know, so how are we going to replace that income? Are we going to do a virtual event? Are we going to just talk to donors and sort of do, you know, the humane societies, no ball at all? Right. What are we going to do? But, but this, is, this is a good time for executive directors and management team to be having these conversations with their board, but also with their funders. You know, funders want to know that we are being proactive and that we are looking out more than three months, that we're looking out 12 months and 18 months. And also, Dolph, you, you raise a point in terms of scenario planning. If, if we find that we can work remotely uh, relatively well, could you see nonprofits maybe reducing their capital expenses or their rental expenses and facility needs? Uh, and absolutely. I think a lot of them, because most are either um, um, on a lease or own a property. So it's something that, you know, so it's something they would have to negotiate or right. even if they're selling a property, this may not be the best time to sell a property, but absolutely. I, I do think this is a great opportunity, opportunity to renegotiate your operating expenses and find ways that you can lower them long-term. Uh, I believe that a significant percentage of people who are not client facing will not be returning to the office because it's going to be cheaper for them to work from home. It is more convenient and it's safer. I could not agree more. And I think uh, our friends in corporate America are already coming to that conclusion as we see daily more and more announcements of organizations telling people to stay home for extended periods of time. And if not indefinitely and nonprofits, I think are in need to pay attention as well. I, I, I will say um, and, you know, different organizations have different management styles, but I think for a lot of people, having a remote workforce is also going to require, you know, that, that they change their management style. So, you know, so when someone's working from home, you know, you kind of have to trust that they're an adult and, you know, they're going to do what they're supposed to do. <laughs> right. you, you, can't, you can't just walk by their office and go, wait, they're not sitting at their desk. <laughs> and, you know, and, and the funny thing is, you know, a lot of people sit at their desk and are on Facebook or other things some portion of the day as well. But, but you're going to have to, as a manager, really kind of create more systems of trust and more systems of accountability 
than, than what you have when someone is sitting in an office in your building. That's such a good leadership lesson, and you're right. And perhaps our leadership style should accommodate someone who's not literally across the hall. And this is going to force us to do that as a certainly a leader going forward. Um, Dolph, you wrote a book about it. Not only have you studied uh, board leadership in the nonprofit sector, your book, uh, Supercharged, Building a Supercharged Board as a Nonprofit Leader, gives us lots of good things to talk about. I, I wonder. Um, how can CEOs do a better job of engaging their boards? Of course, right now is a unique situation, but I'm sure many of the principles you raise still very much apply. I mean, it's so a lot of it really is CEOs have to build relationships individually with their board members. They've got to stay in contact with them. You know, we all have relationships of people who are old friends and we've not stayed in contact with them and we don't have much of a relationship. Same thing with your board. So if you're not reaching out for one-on-ones, if you're not seeking individual counsel and advice from your board, individual board members, you're probably not building those relationships. But the, the other key lesson for me when I was an executive director was to to work with my board leadership so that they were the enforcers of board expectations and board behavior. Yep. So, you know, to, to really as the executive director, it's, it's not my role to go to a board member and say, you've not met your give get, you know, it might be my role to make sure that everybody gets a board member scorecard that states where, you know, each individual board member is on their give get, but ultimately it's the board chair or the governance governance chair's responsibility to have that difficult conversation with the board member if they're not meeting expectations, or even frankly, if they're being a bad board member, if they're being a bomb thrower, you know, a naysayer, whatever. Um, you know, but, but from my, you know, as what I've always kind of found is that as the executive director, if I try to play that role, what happens is I start to become a polarizing force within the board and it exactly. makes it more difficult for me to do my job. Right. And so true. But I think, unfortunately, a lot of board members abdicate that responsibility or boards do. Right. And then it's left on the executive director and they're put in a very uncomfortable and awkward situation. Oh, absolutely. And, and that's where the executive director's relationship with the board chair is critical. Uh, I, I, I know successful executive directors who really believe that they don't need to have weekly or biweekly um, meetings with their board chair, and they're still successful executive directors. But I got to tell you that if you aren't meeting at least every other week um, with your board chair where you've got an agenda and you're not just talking about tactical, but you're also, you're also building the relationship and you're talking about some strategic issues and you're asking key questions like, you know, before issues come up, you're, you're talking through how the two of you are going to handle it. Then it becomes more of a partnership where you're able to say to your board chair, Hey, you know, Dolph's not meeting his give get on the board. And I really need for you to go have a conversation with Dolph. Right. And, and then the two of you strategize how that conversation happens, what it looks like. And, and that's where you as the executive director can even provide some coaching to your board chair. So if they're uncomfortable with it, you kind of say, well, can we role play this? You know, you know, what, why don't we start and I'll be the board chair and you be, you be the board member who's not meeting the give get and then we'll reverse it. So, you know, but you actually do some role playing and some other great things that I learned in my social work training 30 plus years ago, right. um, you know, but, but it works. It really does work. That's great advice. And sadly, I think a lot of organizations or executive directors uh, wait until it's too late. And then we're back into a corner having to deal with that awkward situation with our board chair, where in, if we follow your advice, we're going to already have a relationship that allows that conversation to occur more comfortably. 
Absolutely. I, I know um, there's this great book by Harvey McKay called, and it's a book about sales, by the way, but it's called Dig the Well Before You're Thirsty. And that is, that, that is also a really good motto um, for your board chair. You know, dig that well before you're thirsty. If you, know, if you don't have a relationship before you need something from your board chair, you're going to have a lot harder time getting what you need. Well, and it, it applies certainly to fundraising too, doesn't it, Dolph? If, if we haven't invested in the relationship and now we just show up for desperation uh, appeals, uh, it's unlikely to be successful. And your point is certainly appropriate there as well with board leadership. Relationship first will lead to success later. Absolutely. Um, I, I wonder what you think about the current situation. I, I fear that there are going to be transitions in the nonprofit sector. Organizations in financial distress are going to have turnover. Perhaps some positives might be nonprofit organizations are going to look for partners, uh, if not full-scale mergers, um, uh, new relationships that lead to new leadership. But you've talked a lot about that, Dolph. What, what is key? What are the keys, I guess, to making a, a successful CEO transition? if in fact that's going to occur? And I, I, that is such a great question. Um, I actually think we are about to see a wave of transitions um, in the chief executive spot. Really? For, for the, yeah, yeah, for the reasons you mentioned. But also, I think over the next three to five years, we are going to see a wave of retirements. So, uh, you know, people, I think there's a lot of people who are going to see their organization as a chief executive through this current crisis. Uh, but they're already at or near retirement age. And once they finish seeing the organization safely through, they're going to be done. They're going to be like, oh. you know, I, I, I could have retired five years ago and I should have, and right, now I'm right. hanging it up. So like, I mean, you know, like, like I just, I really believe that's what we're going to see. A whole and, generation, Dolph, literally, yeah. I mean. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, you know, and one of the things that we've already seen, and this is not true in every sector, but in most sectors, uh, you know, the, the chief executive has been, on average, the average age of the chief executive has been getting older and older. And right. so I, I do think this is going to prompt a lot of people to take a long, hard look at where they are in their own life and make, the dis- make some decisions to, to change some things. And I think that's going to mean, you know, this, this whole wave of retirement. But, but so for, for organizations that are facing a transition, I think the first thing is to look at where you are at and make and make some decisions based on on the reason your chief executive is leaving, as well as um, the tenure of your chief executive. And so, um, if your if your chief executive is leaving because you are in crisis, or if your chief executive is leaving after a long successful tenure, you have got to bring in an interim executive director, and it's got to be someone who's not a candidate for the permanent position. Interesting. Uh, and, yeah, and I, I am adamant about this. I say this again and again to organizations. I'll share with you. Um, there's a few organizations who um, who have ignored that advice, and then I see their new executive director last between 12 and 24 months and leaves. Um, exactly. So, so you can you can ignore the advice, but but I can tell you right now, you are very likely to have a, a, an unintentional interim. And so, you know, so I think the reasons to bring an interim in the first is um, is if you're in crisis you can bring in someone who can help stabilize because they have specialized skills that you may not need in your next permanent, but you need for the next six to 18 months. Right. Um, but then also, you know, if you're, if you have had someone who's been there a decade, two decades, and it's been phenomenally popular, there's going to be a backlash when someone new comes in. 
board members, staff members are all going to look at the new person and say, you're not our last ED and you're not, you don't act like them. You have different expectations. And, and so oftentimes those are the chief executives that don't last a year or 24 months. And so if you bring an interim in, the interim kind of cleans the palate. So people look at the interim and go, oh my gosh, you know, you, you know, you, you do this and that and the other, and this is all very different and we don't like change. And they get that out of their system with the interim so that when the next permanent person starts, they, you know, you know, that then, then they go, okay, yeah, it's a new day. We get it. Whenever we see a change in this position, we're going to, we're going to see a different style and a different person. The I love other that. thing though, yeah. well, well, thank you. The, the other thing though, that, that, that an interim executive director allows you to do is to wait for the right chief executive candidate and not, not the right now chief executive candidate. Right. And so um, I will share with you as well that organizations that choose not to bring in interims often experience pain during that interim period because they're trying to run an organization without someone actually in place as its head to run it. And it creates pain for the senior leadership team. It creates pain for the board. Um, and so consequently, suddenly people become very focused on filling the position and not waiting to find the right candidate. And so what ends up happening is they bring in someone who maybe is not the perfect fit, but is available to do the job now. And once again, they end up with a 24-monther. So from my perspective, the first thing is really look at where you're at and bring in an interim if you need one. But the second is once you've got that permanent person to create a, a real onboarding plan that's a six-month or 12-month onboarding plan that where the board and the senior leadership team are helping to build their relationships with the new chief executive, right. but also helping the new chief executive really create the connections that they're going to need to be successful. Um, I will say, I think there's a couple of other things that boards need to do as well um, when a new permanent chief executive starts. One of those is to have really good boundaries with staff. During an interim period, staff often have more access to the board than what they have um, when there's a permanent chief executive. Good and point. that book, yeah, you know, but but that becomes like really comfortable for, for the staff and, and if allowed to, they will continue to have that level of access. And so one of the other ways that I think boards will set a new chief executive up to fail is they allow themselves as individual board members to be triangulated with staff as opposed to not having to go through the chief executive. So, so one of the other things that boards can do is to make sure they have really good boundaries with staff as the new permanent chief executive comes in. Great point. And so lots of things to unpack there. But number one, the, the whole concept of an interim uh, allows you to avoid either overreacting to the, the veteran executive director that just left, right, trying to duplicate him or her, or trying to find the opposite of that. Your interim, I guess, allows things to neutralize. I love the clean the palate analogy that we're going to kind of set things in a neutral position and determine where we need to go. Um, and then once we get someone, I've seen that a lot too, Dolph, where we kind of parachute the new person in and don't have a thoughtful orientation. And that's why I guess you're emphasizing that point in particular. I, oh, absolutely. And there's, there's a great HBR, Harvard Business Review article that I often recommend boards uh, read. And it's called After the Handshake. Uh, yeah, because so often what happens after the handshake with the new chief executive is the board chair says, here are the keys. There's where the restrooms are. 
good luck, call me if you need anything. And that right. is not the way to do this. <laughs> so true. I'm a big fan of the, uh, the first 90 days uh, is a book by Michael Watkins that kind of talks about similarly that having a, an organized and thoughtful process to starting a job. So in other words, this can be helpful, I think, for any position. But your point is, in particular, if we kind of hang our new executive director out to dry by just do- dropping them in, um, you know, we're doing a disservice to the organization. Right. And, and there's just one other thing I need to throw out there. Um, if you are a board and you are hiring someone as your chief executive who will be a first-time CEO, it is critical that you provide them with the resources so they can hire a professional coach. Right. One, of, one, of my, one of my pet peeves about the nonprofit world is we will take someone who's doing a great job in their position um, and promote them to the next position. So, you know, so for example, you know, the highest performer in a department is the person who's most likely to become the manager of that department when a manager leaves. But we promote them without providing them with the training, support, and coaching necessary for them to succeed. And then we scratch our head and go, why didn't they succeed? Gosh, we just don't understand it. They were so good in their last job. So I, I think part of how boards counteract that is to provide their new chief executive with the resources to hire a coach for the first year that helps really helps them adjust to go from having one boss to a board of 12 people who are now their boss, you know, to, to go from having to always say, well, you know, the executive director and I are going to talk about that to suddenly being the person that every staff member looks at and, and thinks, well, you could change this just by saying you're going to change it. Right. It's a whole new world. And I could not agree more. And hopefully the nonprofit organizations, particularly board leadership will indeed agree with your point that we need to invest in professional development, including coaching. And that and, will and, help our, you know, sector even more. Right. And I will say, I kind of feel that way across the board. I mean, so as an example, if you're an organization and you're bringing a new development director in, you need to, you need to provide the resources for that development director to get coaching. Even if they've been a development director before, they're walking into a new shop where there's new challenges they've never seen. And they, they need some help and support and coaching in, in dealing with those. And while, yes, someone's supervisor or a manager is always plays a role. You're never going to have the same open, honest, candid relationship with your manager that you would with a coach. Absolutely right. And I hope again, our listeners will take that to heart and certainly board members that are listening will also apply that to their leadership uh, at their nonprofit organization. Uh, Dolph, you and I both know there are a lot of people home now with more time to reflect on their professional journey Uh, I bet there are people, number one, in nonprofit contemplating their leadership opportunities coming up. And I wonder, too, that there are a lot of folks that maybe are in the for-profit sector using this time to reflect, to contemplate, jumping into nonprofit work. How do you advise people that are kind of pondering the nonprofit profession, particularly right now? Oh, my gosh. So the, the first thing that I kind of say to folks is you need to do some soul searching if you're interested in jumping into the nonprofit sector, you absolutely need to do some soul searching because in my own life, the baggage that I carry with me follows me from job to job and, <laughs> right. and, and it crosses sectors. So, so it, so if the reason you're thinking about moving to the nonprofit sector is because, you know, you think you're going to have a better manager, you may not have a better manager in the nonprofit sector. Guess what? You're going to have a manager who is 
thinking about income and expense and, you know, you know, trying to balance the books and trying to keep funders and staff happy the same way that you would in the for-profit sector. So I, I think the first thing is to really do that deep dive soul search to try to think about what's important to you and why you why you actually want to move over into the nonprofit sector. Um, I think it's also a good idea to think about um, whether this is a good time in your life. So um, one of the things we know from the last recession is that nonprofit employment was not did not go down as much as it did in the for-profit world. We also know though that wages did not increase as quickly in nonprofits over the last five years as they did in for-profits. Right. So, you know, so you've also got to make sure that it's a good time in your life to, you know, frankly, potentially make a little bit less money than what you would make long-term if you stayed in the for-profit sector. Yeah. Great points all around. And the grass is not always greener, right? In terms of, I I run into that a lot where for-profit folks frustrated with their role think that everything will be much better and because they will have a quote, feel good opportunity to work for a cause that they enjoy. But you're exactly right. It's still a job and you're still subject to the challenges of leadership or lack thereof. And as you pointed out, Dolph, um, it's not a profession that maybe is going to have the uh, career income earning possibility. Right. And, you know, and, and kind of, as you said, I mean, it's a job and with any job, there's things you don't like to do. There's things in, in, you know, my job and I work for myself that I don't like to do. And probably that's true for you too, bad. And, you know, exactly. um, and you, you just learn how to deal with it. But, but I, I talk to so many people who will say, Oh, you know, I, it's going to be different because it's all about the mission. And, you know, it's not like everyone in a nonprofit comes skipping into work every day, you know, singing about the mission. It just doesn't work like that. Right. The sooner they learn that, the better, right? Before they make the jump. And so again, Dolph, you've had wonderful advice on every topic I was hoping you would cover. Uh, I've got a page of notes and I know our listeners are going to benefit from all of this. Any final words of wisdom you might offer to someone pondering nonprofit leadership? Oh, gosh. So the, the final words of wisdom would actually be um, to think about your personal finances. And um, there's, a, there's actually, um, there's a book that, that I'm going to recommend, and it's called Your Money or Your Life. And, and I read it about 30 years ago, and it really helped me understand personal finance. Because wow. one, of the, one of the things that I have found is that if I can be fiscally prudent with my own finances, I have significantly more freedom in my career. I can, I, I, I can decide which job I'm going to take. I can decide to take a riskier, um, a job that may be, may have more risk. Um, but, but if I'm, if I'm worried financially, uh, that's also going to impact my decision-making. So, you know, as, as introspective as this might be, I mean, my biggest advice really is to, you know, think through your own personal finances, figure out way, figure out how you can make sure that you are going to be in a good position financially um, now and later so, so that you are able to make the right career decisions for you. Fantastic advice. And um, you've lifted up that in several books. As you know, I encourage my guests to offer something for our, our bookshelves. Um, perhaps that is the book you'd lift up, Dolph, or might you have another to offer as oh. a parting gift? 
Uh, oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, like, folks should absolutely get your money or your life. It is a, and it's an old book. It's probably probably out of print, um, but right. um, but I'm sure it's available on Amazon. It, it, I mean, honestly, it is it is one of the ways that I learned how to how to manage money, and it is it has allowed me to take risks that I otherwise would not have felt safe taking. Love that. Well, I will absolutely lift that up in all of the resources you have noted throughout our conversation. Dolph, we'll put, of course, in the show notes links to you and the good work you're doing. Is there anywhere you'd like in particular to call our listeners to, to find out more? Absolutely. Visit me at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. You can find out more about me, what I do. You can get links to the podcast, the blog, pretty much everything's at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. Thank you, Dolph. Really appreciate you joining me on the path. Hey, Patton, thank you. It's been great being here. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Dolph as much as I did and came away with some practical ideas that can help you on your professional journey and enhance your organization's fundraising and strategy. Uh, don't forget to check out the show notes available on our website, patmcdowell.com. Again, you can go to the podcast or the news sections of the website and find out all of the information that Dolph and I discuss. And I hope you'll check out his work and in particular, his outstanding podcast called Successful Nonprofits. As always, please consider sharing this episode with somebody else on the path. And if you haven't already, maybe subscribe by going to the podcast page at patentmcdowell.com. Don't miss any of these weekly episodes. We come out every Thursday morning, and we also produce bonus features, uh, usually one per month. Thanks for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. And keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.